Radio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Five years after the European migration and refugee crisis, displacement remains a pressing issue worldwide. According to the UNHCR, the global number of forcibly displaced people passed 80 million during 2020, the highest estimate ever recorded. Several factors have contributed to the increase, including a rise in political violence and instability and extreme weather events. With adverse impacts of climate change increasingly unfolding in real time, concerns are mounting that the world will see a dramatic increase in migration in coming decades. But calculating the number of individuals who will relocate at least partly due to climate change is inherently challenging. The scientific literature does not provide a satisfactory answer to the question of how important climate is in shaping forced displacement. In a new study just published in the journal Nature Communications, Sebastian Schütte, Jonas Vespi, Jürgen Karling, and Halvard Buhag seek to fill this gap and address factors for asylum migration to the European Union. Today, I'm talking to three of the four authors about the article and how we can use their findings. Unfortunately, Jürgen Karling, migration expert, could not join us for the recording. But I'm joined by Halvard, Sebastian, and Jonas. Halvard Buhag is a research professor at PRIO and professor of political science at NTNU. He leads and has directed a number of research projects on security dimensions of climate change and geographic aspects of armed conflict. Sebastian Schutte is a senior researcher at PRIO. He has written and researched on topics such as civil conflict, predicting conflict, and state repression. Jonas Vespi is a senior researcher at PRIO. His work focuses on the relationships between climate, climate change, agricultural performance, and various conflict outcomes. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Halvard, Jonas, and Sebastian. So you guys just wrote an article titled, Climatic Conditions Are Weak Predictors of Asylum Migration. And the title is quite straightforward. But, Halvard, maybe you can start by just telling us briefly about the findings in your article. Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess the the uh, research question of this article is, um, which factors in countries of origin uh, are the most important in, in predicting flows of asylum seekers to the European Union? Uh, and perhaps surprisingly, there isn't any study uh, until ours that satisfactorily answers this question. Uh, there are a number of studies that refer to associations or to some extent even reports on statistical associations, uh, but none that properly identify the main predictors uh, of uh, future asylum flows. Uh, there was one study in particular that I think motivated uh, our initial work on this article, published in Science uh, four years ago, that uh, first estimated and then projected asylum migration flows to the Europe, uh, European Union until 2100 um, based on uh, projected changes in, 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 in the climate system and holding all other drivers constant. And this approach to focusing on individual factors and then holding everything else constant uh, is problematic in our view if we want to have a, a complete and policy relevant uh, view of uh, asylum migration, as is the focus in this particular case. Uh, so what we do is to apply a novel machine learning prediction model, and we consider a wide range of theoretically relevant 
drivers or predictors of asylum migration related to political and security conditions in countries of origin, uh, the economic condition in country, countries of origin, uh, climate and weather conditions, and also some contextual factors, including uh, where countries are located relative to the European Union, for example. And so through uh, these uh, models and through this anal analysis, we find um, that indicators of political violence, um, in particular armed conflict with casualties above around about 500 annual battle-related deaths, but also uh, uh, severe restrictions on civil liberties are really important and good predictors of near future flows of asylum seekers to the European Union. Um, some contextual factors also are important in predicting overall levels, uh, notably distance to the European Union. If you live closer, closer you're more likely to, uh, to decide to move to Europe if, if things go bad uh, in your home country, all else constant. Um, and the economic conditions, and, and in particular the climatic conditions, uh, we fi find are quite unimportant in, in predicting these uh, future flows of asylum seekers. And uh, before we talk about the methods uh, with Sebastian, I'm a little bit curious, what what are climatic conditions actually? Um, like, what, what does that actually mean when you're when you're looking at something like this? Right. So um, in this study, we focus on what we could think of as triggers. Uh, so we focus on short term changes in weather and climatic conditions in these countries of origin. And so we have uh, several uh, statistical variables that measure climatic conditions in different ways. Uh, we have one indicator that measures uh, extent of drought over the growing uh, season in the uh, crop producing areas of each country uh, over the last 12 months. And then we have a complementary measure measuring uh, accumulated uh, drought over three years. And then we also have some measure of temperature deviation uh, in, in, in populated areas. And so we try to uh, capture various anomalous conditions that could conceivably uh, contribute to making life harder, uh, conceivably making uh, ongoing conflicts more severe, etc. But we are focusing here on short-term fluctuations and not on long-term climate change. I think that's important to, to note. Mm. Okay, so Sebastian, tell me about your methods. How was this different from uh, from conventional statistical analysis that you would normally see in social science? Yes, so as Halvard indicated, some studies have been uh, produced before that used a more sort of content uh, conventional quantitative social science approach. And this conventional approach essentially amounts to running a so-called regression model. So you write down an equation and you say, okay, the dependent variable here, the thing that I want to explain is the number of asylum seekers arriving in the EU in a given year. And this is a function of variable one, variable two, variable three, variable four. And importantly, you also have to specify the functional form of these variables. You might say, oh, temperature is supposed to have a quadratic effect or a linear effect. Sometimes multiple variables conspire to bring about an effect. You can have drought and uh, civil war at the same time or something like that. That's a statistical interaction. You have to write all of this down, right? And your ability to do so is not always, you know, guaranteed. Sometimes you don't have good theory to go on. You don't have good evidence to go on. Let's think about 
climate change in, in, in specific terms and, and or, or migration in specific terms. You know, we can have multiple factors that lead people to say, I need to leave this country. I need to go to another country. Different types of crises can 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 cause this. So we didn't think that it would be possible to have an informed way to write down all of these functional forms for all of these variables. And this is where we deviated uh, on one level from these conventional statistical analyses and said, let's use a prediction model. Let's use a model where you only have to specify the variables and then it will inductively figure out interactions and functional forms by itself. It's a so-called random forest model, and it is optimized for sort of finding uh, patterns in the data that will allow it to, to generate good predictions. That is sort of the first point of deviation from standard social science approaches. And the second point of deviation is that uh, Halvars has, has hinted at this as well. Uh, if you have a correlation that comes out of some of those regression models, and then you just say, oh, this is my correlation between, say, temperature and asylum migration. I'm going to assume this is going to be constant for the rest of the century, right? You might be off. These correlations can be subject to change. And so we said, let's not just look at one statistical sample of years and countries from, say, 2000 to 2019 or 2020 or whatever, and and find those correlations and then talk about them. Let's instead mimic the real world challenge of predicting the future only based on the past. And the way we did this in specific terms was we had our sample and say you start in the year 2000 and you take the years 2000 to 2004 as a training data set and you feed this training data set into your statistical model and then say predict year 2005. That's my prediction of the future. So you mimic the real-world challenge of looking at the world in 2004 and wanting to understand what's going to happen next year. Next step is you train from 2001 to 2005 and then predict 2006 and so on and so forth. And if you go through your entire data set, you can take stock in the end and say, here's a set of variables that consistently predicts better than another set of variables. The violence model is consistently better than, say, the climate model. And uh, this is sort of the second area in which we deviated from standard quantitative social science approaches. So this is kind of, or not kind of, it's entirely uh, an uninformed layperson question, because I am not super familiar with any of these things. But I'm curious, uh, is there any issue with the data from, from previous years not being able to predict the future necessarily because things are accelerating. I'm just thinking that, for example, with climate, um, it's happening much faster that, of course, uh, temperatures are warming and there are more and more extreme events. So how does that work then with your machine learning um, and your analysis? That's a very good question. So what we found essentially through trial and error is that it makes a huge difference if you uh, train your model on, say, the past 10 years or the past five years or the past two years. And the reasons, the underlying reasons are exactly the ones that you've just outlined. Things can be subject to change. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, think of uh, 2015 and uh, the, the, the European, uh, European asylum crisis, as it has been called, you know, um, to some extent, 
immediate violence in, say, uh, Syria and Iraq contributed to this, but maybe there was also a change in how displaced individuals sitting in Turkey or sitting as internally displaced people in Iraq and Syria saw the situation. And they were like, oh my God, now ISIS is on the rise. There is no point in waiting this out. We have to move now or never. So all of these things can change over time. And there are no static correlations that will hold for very, very long periods of time. So finding, allowing the model to learn from the past in meaningful ways by giving it enough training data is one thing you need to optimize for, but also not giving it in too much training data. So it sort of runs with correlations that are subject to change over time. And we found the sweet spot by trial and error in the, in the four-year training period range. Uh, and that allows us to flexibly predict the future. But as Halvard has mentioned, it is not a crystal ball. We're predicting the near-term future, the next year, and not the next 50 years or the next 100 years, where the concerns that you've just raised would be so much more important. You know, um, That is simply beyond what we can do with uh, the setup and the data we have. Okay, super interesting. And thanks for humoring me. Yeah, Halvard. Can I just add very quickly? I mean, I, I certainly agree with everything that Sebastian said, but I just wanted to highlight that uh, although uh, factors may may vary in importance over time, and certainly we, we did find considerable indication of that, um, we also did find that uh, some of the most influential indicators capturing conflict and insecurity in, in countries of origin were actually remarkably um, static in that they were uh, important predictors uh, throughout the period that we studied. So um, I just wanted to add that. Interesting. Um, so Jonas, if climate conditions can't help us predict asylum migration, what can? I mean, we've heard a little bit from, from Halvard about this, but what kind of policy recommendations might you have based on the research that you guys have done? Okay, so as uh, as Halvar and Sebastian just mentioned, the, the, our preferred model was this uh, kind of violence model, which is uh, which has several components. And uh, our model is a, a random forest model that in encapsulates um, um, all kinds of different functional forms and and um, and um, interactions. Uh, so uh, when talking about the violence model, uh, we could think of uh, what what types of interactions are interesting. Um, and I think if you if you have an area with a country that is highly repressive, um, so where you see political killings, uh, torture, uh, these things, um, and then you experience um, a civil conflict, an outbreak of violence uh, that particularly reaches uh, highly populated areas, I think uh, that is a, a case uh, where our model predicts uh, high uh, asylum flows. Um, I think also it is worthwhile to mention that uh, when it comes to asylum seekers to the EU, distance to the EU uh, is a very important predictor, as also Salva mentioned. Um, so uh, if you if we think of uh, policy recommendations, uh, I think the best thing we can uh, do um, to prevent these kind of large-scale asylum um, uh, waves that we saw between 2011 and uh, 2015, is to uh, is to try to prevent these types of violent and these types of um, 
combinations of issues to arise. So uh, basically, uh, try to get governments to treat civilians better, uh, reduce poverty, and prevent uh, large-scale war. So uh, in policy terms, that would be building good institutions, strengthening the quality of governance in fragile or repressive states, uh, ensuring stable economic growth. And Halva uh, uh, and me also have a paper recently where we discussed this um, uh, difficulty in, in, in ensuring stable growth, particularly in, uh, in uh, fragile states. So this has to do with conflict uh, too. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, when it comes to preventing large scale wars, investing more in conflict resolution and peace building uh, efforts uh, should be on the table. Hmm. And Jonas, I realized that your PhD uh, thesis from 2018 was also on this topic, um, which and it was titled Climate Development and Conflict, Learning from the Past and Mapping Uncertainties of the Future. So I'm just mm -hmm. curious, do you what do you feel like is the next step for researching or investigating topics like this? Or do you feel that this is a pretty decisive um, answer to some of the questions you've clearly been investigating for a while? Yeah, so I, I think uh, the main uh, thing, if you're looking historically at the effects of climate, I think it's uh, it's um, the conclusion there would be that um, it, it has not been a main driver of the large scale civil conflicts uh, um, historically in the near past. Um, and those are the type of things that have driven asylum migrations. Um, uh, but if we look uh, into the future uh, and think of all the kind of all the different things that uh, climate change could uh, um, create, all the different issues that uh, climate change could affect. Um, I think we need to be much more. <laughs> Um, 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 uh, more creative and imaginative um, uh, and I, I don't think the, the right way to go about is to now try to estimate um, really strict econometric uh, um, effects uh, which can be very difficult and where, where you need to kind of search uh, and, and may also sometimes be uh, lucky uh, to find data that is applicable to that, those kind of methods. Um, so I think we should rather be be thinking more scenario building and these things. And, and uh, that is being done, uh, but we need to do much more of it and, 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 and build on the theories that we, we have on a very broad set of issues, which can be difficult. Mm. Yeah, Sebastian, you have a comment. Yes, I mean, uh, one striking difference between sort of a climate change-based explanation and a, and a, and a violence-centric explanation for these asylum movements is, is political responsibility, right? Climate change is, is happening and it can be mitigated and there can be ways to sort of avert the, the worst of it. But if you look at even the maps that we put in the paper, you know, it's pretty clear that the major sending countries for asylum seekers are places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. And we're looking at very specific policy failures that have led to large-scale escalations of violence in these places. 
Um, we look at foreign policy failures and those things can have dramatic consequences down the line. And this is really something that needs to be understood for the future. Uh, if you, if you, if you invade places, uh, if you, uh, fail to mitigate conflict, uh, in, in certain places, if you, if you cannot get ahead of the curve and, and, and curb the escalation of, of civil wars, then a decade later, 15 years later, you might see large scale asylum movements. And this is the discussion I think we need to return to, to some extent, uh, certainly not only in the light of the evidence that we present, but also in the light of the evidence that we present. And uh, that would be a, a good takeaway, I think, from, from what Jonas has said, you know. Mm. Jonas? Yeah, so uh, I think another thing to mention is that we are, the kind of outcome variables that we are studying is asylum migrations to the EU. And, uh, and as you also mentioned in the paper, uh, when it comes to the effect of climate on migration, uh, asylum migration to Europe might not be the, the, the main thing we should be concerned about. So internal displacement and also refugee flows uh, across borders uh, nearby in other fragile, fragile settings might be a much more important type of outcome uh, when it comes to those kind of variables. Over. Yeah, I think that point is, is very well taken. And um, uh, another issue of uh, relevance here is the fact that migration or human mobility is also an important way to, to cope with livelihood challenges, be they driven by climatic disasters or other reasons. And so uh, seeing migration or, or mobility responses to, to extreme weather events, for example, as something uh, 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 principally bad, I think, is in itself problematic because it might be worse off for those who are unable to move, right? And so I think that's one of the, the, the key challenges here, especially when discussing uh, human mobility and migration within the frames of climate change, that see, seeing those migrants as actually people will, with agency and, and using mobility as a way to cope and to minimize damages resulting from climate change is not, and not just something uh, bad that comes out of climate change and something we should prevent uh, at all costs. And that kind of brings me to my last question, which I hope all of you will have some thoughts on, but I'll start with you, Halvard. You've been very vocal about what public debates and even other academics get wrong about climate and conflict. And I think this article just strengthens some of the arguments you've made and the data that you've written about previously. So what do you think are some of the biggest mix misconceptions about the societal consequences of climate change? Um, well, first of all, there are well-founded fears. Um, I think we can all acknowledge that, uh, that climate change will, will, will uh, provide new challenges to human well-being in the future. And, and in many regions, uh, increasingly extreme weather events, for example, are already contributing to making social life harder. Um, in terms of loss of livelihoods, uh, increasing food insecurity in some places, which can be uh, uh, made even worse by, by, by extreme weather events, for example, uh, risks of water scarcity, where uh, shifting temperatures may be one driver. Uh, in the longer term, obviously, loss of nationhood due to sea level rise is, is, is an important and, and real reason for concern. And so all of that, I think, is, is important to keep in mind. 
Um, but much of the debate that I've been taking part in uh, and contributing to uh, focuses more on the on the contemporary era and the extent to which we already detect a weather signal on ongoing conflicts and to, to what extent uh, civil wars today are already affected by climatic extremes or also by climate change. And here the evidence is much weaker. And in fact, uh, the debate focusing on climate as a driver of conflict, and in some cases even framed as a root cause of conflict, unfortunately, like Sebastian mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, overlooks some of the key uh, uh, political issues and political challenges that are present in these conflict hosting societies. And, and, and framing a conflict or a particular uh, 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 migration movement for, for that matter, as driven by climate in some sense, uh, is a way to overlook some of the more fundamental political and societal issues that can be fixed much more easily uh, than, than, than anthropogenic uh, climate change. Hmm. Sebastian or Jonas, do you want to add anything? Yeah, um, I think um, I started out by sort of criticizing um, the maybe mainstream quantitative social science approach, but I, I want to stress that this can work quite well in certain areas. It's not inherently flawed. But as 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 Halvard has just outlined, there is a a big difference between sort of the climate change and its effects that we can already see today and the climate change and its effects that will very likely occur in the future. And I just think we need to be very humble as scholars when it comes to our ability to see those changes of the future in detail and, and to make accurate numerical predictions because we quite simply don't know. And I think being humble and being honest with the limitations of our approaches and being open to having a debate that is multidisciplinary and, and multi-methodological, that, that, is, that is very important because there can be a false sense of certainty that comes from, from some of these quantitative studies um, and they might not hold up in the future. Yeah, I, I think I want to add, uh, I guess, been said in some ways before but but the, uh, when it comes to the impact of climate change into the future uh, i think uh, we really need to focus also uh, not only on on the uh, on the climate mitigation and and the climate side of things but but to observe that the bad implications will be the implication will be much worse in areas with poor governance conflict and poverty uh, so, for instance, if you uh, we observed uh, the cyclone Nargis when it ha uh, rammed uh, in Myanmar uh, in 2008, uh, uh, hundreds, uh, at least hundred thousand people died, drowned. Um, while in 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 um, uh, India, uh, you have had much. Uh, a lot of the same type of impacts, but with 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 less uh, death tolls and lower uh, casualties. Uh, and I think so. Thinking about uh, fixing governance and and improving uh, 
poor people lives uh, uh, across the globe is is one of the most important things we can do to to lower the the bad impacts of climate change i think that should be on the agenda definitely and and uh, and it's one of the things that we could more easily solve too thanks for picking prio's peace in a pod this podcast is a production of the peace research institute oslo prio located in norway for more information visit prio.org editing recording and hosting by me indigo trickhacker additional writing this week by simona seslo with passages from a prio blog post by jürgen sebastian halvard and jonas music by martin Dunnable.